Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. You need to pray for me. I've been binging on the Olympics. I mean, we're only a day into it. I've already just overdosed, okay? So this is my favorite time every four years when the Olympics come out. And so uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, it's really good stuff, but not as good as this stuff is that we're studying here as we work our way through Romans 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Romans chapter 8. And we will, we're taking a, taking hold of a big old chunk here this morning, much bigger than what we have been. It's a, it's a tough topic. And uh, this has been our teaching series, More Than Conquerors, Hope in Suffering. We'll look at Romans 8, verses 18 through 27. It's been a little harder this week for me to memorize. I've been working through it, three by five cards, and boy, this is a big a section we're looking at this weekend, a very important section. Here's my uh, question I want to ask you this morning. Do you have the hope of God that can endure the most severe suffering? Do you have the hope of God that can endure the most severe suffering? Do you have such a rich and robust relationship with God that you can face anything? I'm going to give you three examples of people who seem to have that. This is from Randy Alcorn's book on happiness. It's titled Happiness, and it's in the chapter, Happiness in Christ is Deeper Than the Health and Wealth Gospel. And uh, listen to what he says. He gives these three examples. Joseph Scriven, 1820 to 1886, wrote, What a friend we have in Jesus. How many are familiar with the song? Love the song. But do you understand or do you know when he wrote that song? He wrote that song after his fiance drowned. What a friend we have in Jesus. George Matheson, 1842 to 1906, wrote, O love that wilt not let me go. And he wrote that after his fiance rejected him because he was going blind. And then we have Horatio Spafford, 1828 to 1888, wrote one of our best loved hymns under tragic circumstances. Spafford, his wife and his four daughters, planned a trip to hear his friend D.L. Moody preach in England. Detained by business, Spafford sent his family ahead on another ship. Their ship sank. And though his wife was rescued, his daughters drowned. All four of them drowned. While traveling to meet his distressed wife, he was informed by the ship's captain that they'd nearly reached the spot where his daughters perished. As he passed over their watery graves, Bafford wrote a profound hymn that has touched millions. Anybody know what that hymn is? It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. So do you have the kind of hope in God or the hope of God that can endure the most severe suffering? That's what we're going to look at this morning. You can see in our notes after we read our text, we're going to answer a couple questions. Why suffering? Two wrong answers to right answers, and then how can I have hope in suffering? That's how we'll wrap it up, and then we're going to take communion this morning. And so that's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love you. We love your presence. If it wasn't for your steadfast love, we would be consumed by this broken world filled with sin and suffering. We are reminded in Lamentations 3, through 23, your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us, teach us how we can have hope in suffering so that suffering would relate to our character like fire relates to gold. Rather than destroying us, may it refine us, strengthen us, and beautify us for your incomparable glory and our uncontainable joy. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, 
Amen. Let's take a look at this text. I will make very few comments as we read through it. It's, it's a pretty heavy-duty text, but uh, Romans 8, starting at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope... For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. It's a good word, really good words. So here we go. First of all, why suffering? Two wrong answers. Here's your first wrong answer. God is not in control. And oftentimes people will say, well, we're suffering because God's not in control. Let me refute that with Scripture, Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. That's what Matthew 10, 29 says. What what that is, is that's first century way, a first century way of saying God governs the most insignificant events on this planet. And may I also add to that, not only is he... He's in control, but he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. That's what that verse is also telling us. So when you think about him being in control, he's also all-knowing. He knows all the details that are going on, even something as seemingly insignificant as a bird falling from the sky. And then Matthew 8, 27 It says, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? It's talking about Jesus. And so uh, God is in control of the wind and the sea, which means he's in control of tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis. So not only is God in control and he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, but he, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful and controls everything on this planet Earth and everything in the universe Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What in the world does that mean? This is what it means. God decides the numbers in Las Vegas, okay? That's exactly what it means. So whatever numbers are going to come up, he's the one that decides those numbers. That's what that means. So God... So God is in control. That would be, that's the wrong answer when people say, well, God's not in control. Well, the Bible refutes that. Here's another wrong answer that God, well, if he's in control, then maybe he's not good. Then he's not a very good God because look at all the wickedness and the evil. And I've actually seen people who have uh, defected from the faith or failed to come to the faith because they uh, just can't accept the fact that there's so much suffering and he must not be good. Nahum... One seven. You didn't know there was a book in the Bible by the name of Nahum, huh? But uh, but Nahum one seven. You'll be familiar with this verse when I read it because we we used to sing a song based on this verse. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Now listen to me. Not only is He good, but He is a stronghold when all things are falling apart in your life. You can run to Him and find and experience his goodness in the time of difficulty. Psalm 145, 7, very, uh, and, and verse 9, verse 7 and 9 from Psalm 145, God has abundant goodness. That's what it says in 7. And then in verse 9, it says, the Lord is good to all. My favorite verse, one of my favorite verses, I got a lot of favorite verses, 
But Psalm 34.8, you could probably quote this, Psalm 34.8, anybody? Taste and see that the Lord is good. And everybody look up here. Look up here, listen to me. Once you have tasted of his goodness, nothing compares. Nothing compares to his goodness. Believe me. Now, if you doubt that, it's probably because you haven't tasted it or it's been a while since you have tasted his goodness. Once you've tasted of his goodness, game over. You're ruined, you're wrecked for anything else. And you want to continue to live in the reality of his goodness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, before we move on, uh, let, let me explain something. I'll put three attributes together. There's three attributes that you need to know intimately, three attributes of God you need to know intimately if you're going to survive suffering, if you're going to get through suffering, not just survive, but thrive in the midst of suffering. Uh, write this verse, these two verses down on your notes. It's Psalm 9, 9 and 10. Psalm 9, 9 and 10. This is what it says. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, those who know his name, what does name represent in the Bible? When you say someone's name, it represents their character. So the more you get to know who he is, his character, who he is and what he's done for you, you're going to trust him. That's what it says. Those who know his name will trust him because he has never, ever, ever, ever forsaken those who seek him. So, so you need to get to know. So if you're struggling with faith, you're going through a hard time, the cure to that is to get to know him. Spend time with him. Get to know him. Get to know these three attributes. And they're in direct uh, opposition to what we just said, these two, these two wrong answers. You can see them here. But they are, God is perfect in love. He's infinite in wisdom. And he's unlimited in his power. So this is how it goes down in our lives, that God in his perfect love, wants what is best for you. That's his heart desire. He wants what is best for you. In his infinite wisdom, he knows what is best for you. Do you guys agree with that, that God's a whole lot smarter than you? Okay, yeah, I think so. And not only that, in his unlimited power, he will, he will do what is best for you. It will not be thwarted. It will not be prevented. And so, so there's a confidence that you need to live with that God is at work passionately, purposefully, and powerfully in the worst of times doing a thousand things we can't see with our finite minds. The Bible is very clear about that. That's why it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by what? Be, we, we walk by faith and not by sight because we trust his loving wise control of our lives. And so as you get to know him, those are the three attributes you need to keep coming back to about God. And uh, so let's talk about two right answers. Two right answers. It is the obvious consequences. Why suffering? It is the obvious consequences of man's horrific rebellion against a holy and loving God meant to bring our hearts back to him. So it is the obvious consequences of man's horrific rebellion against a holy and loving God meant to bring our hearts back to him. Verses 20 and 21 in our text, for creation was subjected to futility. Stop there just for a minute. So it was subjected to futility. This word futility is a fascinating word. It's the same word that's used 38 times. Remember the, our study through the book of Ecclesiastes? Remember the word meaningless? All is meaningless. Life is meaningless under the sun. It's, that's the same word. It's the exact same word. So what he's saying here is that uh, for all creation was subjected to futility. So what is futility? Here's what futility is. I'll use the quote of St. Augustine from his book, Confessions, and that is, our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in him. That's futility. That's the futility that we live in a, in a world that you can pursue anything and everything in creation to try to satisfy the deepest longing of your heart, and it's not going to happen. Only God can satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. 
More is never going to be enough, whatever it might be. That's the futility. We live in a broken world, and you're not going to be able to satisfy the deepest longing in your heart by something in creation. It's only in the creator. That's what he talked about. That was the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun. Life apart from God is meaningless. It's empty. It's futile. And, um, and so I was thinking, uh, you guys familiar with who Michael Phelps is? The most, uh, known as the most decorated Olympian of all times. So why did he, after his fourth Olympics, want to commit suicide? Why did he have to go to drug rehab? Why did he have two DUIs? Because being the most decorated Olympian cannot satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's why there's a futility. There's a futility in our lives that should ultimately bring us to God. Notice it says here, so for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who subjected it to futility? Who's him? It's, it's God. God in hope, in verse 21, that the creation itself, notice the contrast he makes, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So not only is there futility, but there's bondage to corruption, so that in hope that creation would be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, now, now listen to me. I... I I need to say this every week because we're not fully convinced of this and we forget about this, but listen to me. God is not, he is not a restrictor. He's a liberator. He is not a restrictor. He's a liberator. He's not a killjoy. He wants to fill you up with his joy. That's where life is found. It's found in him. And, uh, but we, we often think otherwise. We think we can find it somewhere in creation. And so we chase after all of these crazy things. And we make these good things into ultimate things. And then we, we crash and burn as a result of that. Sin or evil is a violation of God's standards that he has established by his love and wisdom reflecting his divine character. So in essence, sin is trampling on the love and wisdom of God, the very character of God. Genesis 3 is where the fall began, and uh, human history is a, in every culture, in every time, demonstrates the dire consequences of living life as we prefer rather than as God commands. And so suffering is a reminder this world is not the way it is supposed to be. All human problems are ultimately symptoms, and it's our rebellion, it's our rebellion in subsequent separation from God is the cause. Notice it says, in hope, in hope that the futility and bondage to corruption will bring our hearts back to him. Listen to what David says in Psalm 119, 67. Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. When was the last time you said, it was so good for me to be afflicted? <laughs> when was the last time you said that? He's saying it right here. God, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for afflicting me. Thank you for bringing these trials into my life. Because well, why? That I might learn your statutes. What is he saying? Because I have a level of intimacy with you that I would have never had otherwise. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's what he's saying. So let me ask you this question. I do this survey all the time. Anytime I use these verses here, and it's usually last night, it was like 50%, more than 50% of the people raised their hand. How many, by show of hands, can echo the psalmist words that it was affliction, it was difficulty, it was pain that brought your heart back to God? Show of hands, show of hands. Oh my goodness, yeah, more than 60, 70. 80%, yeah, I mean, praise God. Yes. Praise God. He uses that in our lives. And there's a level of intimacy and there's a level of tasting of his goodness that you have now that you would have never had otherwise. 
if, you, if it hadn't been for the, the difficulty and the, and the suffering in your life. That's why I love what C.S. Lewis uh, says. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but shouts to us in our pain. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's why I also like Hudson Taylor's uh, statement. He says, it's not how great the pressure is, but where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or presses you near his heart. It'll either push you away from God or it will bring you closer to him. Interesting thing about suffering, it will either make you or break you, but it will never, ever leave you the same. So your, your choice, your decision, and how it's going to work in your life to draw your heart closer to him. Here's the second uh, right answer to suffering. Why suffering? So that Christians can display that Christ is more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death can take away. Now look at our, our text here, verse 17. That was actually last weekend's text. You guys remember, we talked about this. In fact, I would encourage you, if you weren't here last weekend, to go online, get our app, listen to that message. It's a really important message, and you need to understand the context, that we are adopted kids of God. He loves us. He adores us. And what I said last week is that nothing chases away fear and insecurity like like remembering who God is and who you are as his child. And that's why, and he says in verse 17, and if children then were heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's, he's just saying, you're gonna follow Jesus, it's inevitable, you're gonna experience suffering, and in fact, it's gonna be a true test of your faith. It's gonna test you, why did you come to him, to get from him or to be with him? For him to serve you or for you to serve him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you have any idea what awaits you, those of you that have put your faith in Jesus? When you take your last breath on earth and your first breath in heaven, the first moment in the arms of Jesus, the first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. I mean, that's it. To, to, to feel his embrace, to know him, to experience him. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. It's, it's absolutely breathtaking. That's what he's saying here. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verses 24 and 25, it says, for in this hope... Now, the Bible uses the word hope differently than how we use it. It's, for us, it's wishful thinking. But in Bible language, it's confident, joyful expectation. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. That's, that's what that means. And it's a certain future. So for in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I'm going to have you do something here. I like to do this from time to time, but I want you to turn and discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Uh, this question, here's my question for you. How would you summarize the storyline of the Bible? How would you summarize just what is the whole, what is the uh, meta-narrative of the Bible? What's the big picture? And uh, let me, uh, th there's actually four words that simply describe kind of the flow of the, of the scriptures. See, let me just see if you know that. Discuss it with the folks sitting next to you. What's the big picture of the Bible? There it is.
Okay, what are you guys, uh, are you guys coming up with some uh, good answers here? Here, let me give you the answers that uh, I want you to know and, and probably memorize. Here's kind of the big theme of the Bible. Creation, here's the four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the scriptures. That's the Bible. So Genesis 1 and 2, creation. You were created in the image of God to have relationship with God. And then chapter 3, what do we have? We have the fall, man's rebellion against God. And the rest of the Bible is God's redemption of mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. The rest of it is that story, story of redemption. And then the very tail end of the, of the scriptures, the end, the revelations, uh, we have what? We have restoration, new heavens, new earth. That's how you could summarize the whole story. And so what we could say here in, in that story is that the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to this earth to die in our place for our sins and all who believe, repent, and believe in him have eternal life. We have him in our lives. We've already been talking about all the different implications of that. The best gift that we have, not only what's, what's the greatest thing that God has done is reconcile us to himself, not through what we've done, but what through Christ has done. And the best gift that he's given to us is what? The gift of himself. We have him, we have his presence. And so what we see in this big story between redemption and restoration, we'll talk a little bit more about as we kind of work through the notes, is that we have his presence and that suffering is inevitable in this fallen world, but if we have God in our lives, we will suffer well because we will have hope in suffering. A world of suffering exists so that, now why didn't God, when you committed your life to Christ, why didn't he just take you to heaven? Because he wants, he's got work for you to do here. And part of that work is to put him on display in this broken world. And so suffering, a world of suffering exists so that you and I, by not complaining or murmuring, can put Christ on display. Philippians 2, 14 through 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, that people would look at our lives and infer from our lives that Christ is more satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death could ever take away. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3.8, showing the world that everything is worthless in comparison to the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus. There's a number of guys that I have uh, benefited greatly from that are good Bible teachers. Uh, one of those guys is Charles Swindoll. I've always enjoyed his Bible teaching, especially in the early years of my, I haven't listened to him as much as late. I got all of his books in my library and will draw from his resources from time to time. But really a great uh, Bible teacher. But another Bible teacher that had a great impact on my life early on in my life was Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel, uh, founder of Calvary Chapel. And... Uh, of that whole movement of churches and uh, used to listen to his radio program just week in and week out and really loved hearing him. And, uh, but he said something a number of years ago that was really helpful for me. He said, if I do well when all is well, that says nothing to the world around me. But if I do well when all else is falling and failing, then indeed is my life a witness to the world. Then indeed my life is a witness to the world. I mean, anybody can say, you know, they trust Jesus and they love Jesus and every, you know, when everything's going well. But what about when things are really going bad for you? Can you still trust him in that? That's why I also love uh, Timothy Keller's book on, it's on suffering, walking with God through pain and suffering. Profound book, unbelievable book. But in that book, he says, Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer, but that when we suffer, we would suffer well. We would become more like him that we could put him on display in our lives. He also says, the gospel doesn't promise you better life circumstances. Let me, let me repeat that, okay? Did you guys hear that? 
The gospel doesn't promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. A better life. In the midst of whatever circumstances, and it's because we have his presence. So how do you do that? How do you live this better life? How do you suffer well? Well, how can I have hope in suffering? This is the next part in our notes, and and I've got three words that will help us with this. Power, perspective, and then prayer. These are three words that I have drawn from the text here this morning. And so how can I have hope in suffering? The first one is power, verse 23. We have the first fruits or foretaste of the Spirit. That's verse 23. Verse 26, it says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, the Holy Spirit, he will help you in your weakness. Verse 4, we also read a few weeks ago that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to who? The Spirit. So there's something that happens. We have a connection with God through His Holy Spirit that indwells us, that gives us power, enables us to be what He wants us to be, to do what He wants us to do. Oh, here's a pop quiz for you. Remember when we started this study? Romans has how many references to the Holy Spirit? How many references in the book of Romans? 30, 30. How many are in this chapter, chapter Romans 8 alone? 20, 15 within the first 15 verses. But as we walk through this, basically he's just saying, hey, the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit. He will empower you. He's there to lead you. He's there to give you what you need as you go through the difficulties of life. That's why Paul also said in verses 10 and 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now think about that. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells within us. Take that verse and just reflect on it. You'll be unstoppable. That's, That's pretty amazing. Remember the story of Paul when he uh, suffered, he was suffering with a thorn in the flesh. He cried out to God three times. I think, I don't think it was three times in a row. I think there was a time in his life when it just was overwhelming to him. He's just, I'm going to throw in the towel, God. I can't go on. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like giving up? Yeah, he's, he's, he talks about the three times when he felt like giving up. He cried out to God. And Jesus responded by saying, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in what? In weakness, in suffering. My power is made perfect in weakness, in suffering. Ephesians 1, 16 through 21, Paul prayed that their eyes would be opened to a number of things, but one of those things was to this resurrection power working in them. I wish I could somehow communicate to you what kind of power and potential you have through the presence of God in your life. Um, It it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, but the Holy Spirit has to make that alive to you you so that you can begin to realize, oh my goodness, I don't ever have to live a life of helplessness or hopelessness. I have him in my life to see me through whatever I'm going through. And uh, so let me ask you this. What is the measure of his love for you? What is the measure of his love for you? When you're really struggling with whether or not he loves you, what do you go back to? I go back to the cross. What's the measure of his love for me? The cross. What's the measure of his power working in me? What do you go back to? The resurrection. The resurrection. And in fact, our Savior Jesus understands enough to sympathize because of the cross. Our Savior, Jesus, is strong enough to save because of the resurrection. Because your God is sovereign, your life is never out of control. And because he's your Savior, he gives you what you need when life is beyond your control. And you can look to him, you can trust in him. So there's that power part. Now it gets a little bit more difficult. Now we gotta look at the perspective part. So how can I have hope in suffering? I need his power, but I also need perspective. Verse 18, he says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed 
to us. He's talking about perspective. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Wait, 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 for the revealing of the sons of God? They're, they're already revealed. I'm here, I'm here, sons of God. Woo we're right here. They're already revealed. But what is he saying here? And then the next verse is kind of peculiar. Verse 23, uh, he says, we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. What? We are adopted. Didn't, didn't we read last week that we are we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We're, we're, we're his sons. That, that's, that's, but what, he's, he's talking future tense here. We're, we're, they're both are true. And I'm going to explain something to you that you need to really understand. So we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's what you need to understand is that we live between the already but not yet. We live between the already and not yet. Remember uh, what I said, I asked you the, the storyline of the Bible. So you got creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Where are we in that on that chart, so to speak, or on that storyline. We're, we're between, we live between redemption and restoration. Does that make sense? So, so we live between the already redemption and the not yet restoration. So there's a perspective that we need to have and we need to not swing to one extreme or the other. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, it says there, so we do not lose heart. So we do not lose heart. Let me, let me ask this question once again. Have you ever lost heart? He's saying, so we do not lose heart. So we got to read the rest of it to find out why. Why would we not lose heart? So we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. How many would agree with that, that every time you look in the mirror, you see that happening? And if you didn't say yes to that, you're probably 30 years old, okay? 30 or younger. And yeah, you look great now. It's just going to take some time. Yeah, it's going to take some time, but so he says, so we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. We live in a broken world, it's fallen. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day after day as you walk with him. Oh, I love it. I love his presence. I mean, this is the best part of the Christian life. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day, and this is what he says, for our light and momentary trials. Now, I would never say that to you if you're going through tragedy. I'd say, oh, that's light and momentary. Get over it. Come on. No, I would grieve with you, but, but he's saying in light of the glory, he says, our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, he says this, so we do not... Fix our eyes. We do not put our eyes on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Okay, so there's a way that we've got to, there's a perspective here that we've got to work through here. And so we live between the already and the not yet. And I gave you a list, and I'm not going to spend time working through it. You're going to have to study this on your own. It's really complex. That's what my wife told me last night. She says, that was so complex. My goodness, why are you? given this to the, the folks is because I, wanna, I want them to have to think and I want you to think deeply but you're going to have to do it on your own because I'm not going to spend the time working through this. You can see. So this means that there are two ways that we can become unbalanced. We can overstress the already of the kingdom to the exclusion of the not yet and that's where you have the health and wealth gospel. You guys tracking with me? So the health and wealth gospel basically believes that all the stuff we get in heaven, we should get it right now. And if you don't have it now, then you probably have sin in your life or you lack faith. Does that make sense? So if you don't get your healing, you have sin in your life or you lack faith. That's the health and wealth gospel. That's an over-realized eschatology. That's an over-realized eschatology. But you can also have an under-realized eschatology. And that was the, the second part. Let me read to you a quote. This is actually from Ed Welch. Uh, and it talks about this idea of the health and wealth uh, gospel and this is what he says uh, 
about the health and wealth gospel. As a counselor, I see its wretched fruit. It focuses on here and now benefits, leaving people unprepared for hardships. Some even feel guilty when they suffer because they assume they have done something wrong and have yet to figure out what it is. In the end, some are angry at God because he seems to have reneged on his promises to give us a merry life. That is an over-realized eschatology, but you're going to have to study the differences there on your own. Here's the point that I want you to understand, is that we should be neither naively utopian or cynically disillusioned. In other words, we shouldn't be overly optimistic because we know too much about sin, but we shouldn't be overly pessimistic because we know too much about our Savior. So there's a balance. We live between the already and the not yet. And so we should be, as it tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.10, these are verses that are uh, part of your notes there that you can look up later. We should be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Now let me explain this to you. This is not sequential, sorrowful. Yeah, we're gonna be sorrowful, but eventually we'll be rejoicing. No, this is not not sequential, this is simultaneously. This is happening simultaneously within our heart that you are sorrowful and yet rejoicing at the same time. That's, That's this living between the already and the not yet. This is the balance. So as Christians, we should be the most broken-hearted people in this world because of the brokenness of this world and because of sin, and at the same time, the most hopeful people in the world because of our Savior and because of the, the power of the gospel. We should know how to grieve with those that grieve and rejoice with those that rejoice. There should be this balance in our lives. The opposite of joy is not sadness, but hopelessness. This is very complex. We don't understand this. We're either all or, or nothing. We, we go to these extremes, yet the Bible's saying, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. First Thessalonians 4.13 says, we grieve, but not as the world grieves, because we have what? Because we have hope. First Thessalonians 4.13. John 16.33, Jesus said, told this to his disciples before he was gonna exit. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. You are going to get the living de- daylights beat out of you. That's, that's my paraphrase, but that's, what he's, that's basically what he's saying. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So this is what he's saying. This is what he's saying. You can trust his loving, wise control. And listen to me. Sometimes he calms the storm, and sometimes he calms his child in the storm, But either way, you can trust his loving, wise control. But what do I pray when I'm in the storm? We'll talk a little bit more about prayer in a minute. But this is what you pray. You ask boldly, as Jesus did in the garden. He said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then you surrender completely. But not my will, but your will be done. And you trust his loving, wise control in the midst of the difficulties. And then people will infer from your life, wow, Wow, look at them. Their trust is in God. I've never seen anyone trust in God in the midst of difficulty and suffering. That's what he wants for us. That's what he wants for our lives. Let me share with you a quick story here that I think that might help us. Hope is an assured future. Imagine two women, and both of them have a purse, And in that purse are all the assets and money that they have in the world. Everything they have in the world is in that purse. They both have $1,000 in cash, and that's all they have. And the difference is the one woman knows tomorrow, for some reason, $10 million will be wired into her bank account. And the other woman knows there is nothing coming from anybody for the indefinite future. Now imagine those two women, we'll just imagine this, that they go to Arrowhead Mall shopping and they both have the very same experience. A homeless person panhandling in the parking lot snatches their purses. Their purses are lost. They're taken. They're stolen. 
how are they going to respond to that? Well, I can tell you, the woman who knows tomorrow 10 million is coming into her bank account is gonna say, oh, what an inconvenience. <laughs> oh, well, would you agree with that? Here, here, take my car too. <laughs> the other woman is what? In total despair. Do you know why? I mean, the same circumstances. Why is the response so different? Because what you believe about the future completely determines how you process the present. That, that's the perspective. We live in the already, but not yet. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. You don't swing to these extremes. It creates this balance. The power of the Christian life is that we have a hope, a perspective that overwhelms suffering. It doesn't eliminate it. It overwhelms it. We have a joy that the worst kind of suffering can't take from us. We have a joy in Christ, a, a hopefulness in him. And... Um, there is a joy that the worst kind of suffering cannot destroy. There is no person or thing or circumstance that can take away the joy God gives. Now, here's the deal. It's not suffering. It's not, it's not your suffering that, that destroys you. It's not your suffering. It's not the difficulties that you're facing. It's your self-pity. It's your bitterness. It's your hopelessness that destroys you. Did you notice that when we started reading this text, we stopped short of Romans 8.28? How many recognize that? They go, man, he stopped short of that. We're going to talk about it next week because you've got to come back next week because we're going to talk about how wonderful these, this promise that he takes all the bad in our lives and works it for our good. But that's part of the hope. That's part of that hope. So you're going to have to come back next week to get more of that understanding of that perspective. But that's part of it. See, with his presence, with his presence, a prison can become a palace. And without his presence, a palace can become a prison. So, so how do you get the power and the perspective? I think it's, uh, you get it through prayer. Verses 14 through 15 prayer that touches the Father's heart. We talked about it last weekend, verses 14 through 15. God hears us as a parent hears the painful cry of their child. Now, how much does he hear us? How much does he pay attention to us? Well, Psalm 56, 8 and 9, I just love these verses. I keep, I keep coming back to these verses. Psalm 56, 8 and 9, he says, you have kept count of my tossings. How many have had sleepless nights before we just toss and turn and toss and turn? Could you tell me how many times you tossed and turned? God can. God knows exactly how many times you tossed and turned last night or a few nights ago. That's what it's saying. It's saying, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. See, the more you realize that God is for you and with you, the less you'll be overwhelmed by suffering. Now, we're, we're coming to an end, and in a few minutes, I'm going to pray and prepare hearts for communion, and we're going to watch, we're going to listen to a song at the very end to really reflect on what God is speaking to us. But let me just say this real quick. Everybody look up here. This is what you need to understand. If you had any idea, if you had any idea what the Creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth thinks about you and feels about you and wants to do in your life, nothing would keep you from interacting with him. Nothing would keep you from prayer and nothing could rob you of the joy that only he can give you. It just, it overwhelms me when I think about it. I, I can't even put it into words. When I think about that, when I reflect on that, when I know that that's what the scripture teaches me, it's just, it's absolutely amazing. See, there's a difference between saying your prayers and being with him. And being with him. 
Romans 8, 26, it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray. The Spirit intercedes, groaning too deep for words. Our access to the Father is not only through the Son, but by the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 18, the Holy Spirit's inspiration is as necessary as the Son's mediation. Through the Holy Spirit, our deepest desires, longings, and burdens of our hearts can be engaged with and satisfied in Christ. Listen to what John Stott says. It seems to be it seems to be this. Sometimes when believers do not know how to pray in words, they groan without words. And, and the best example of that would be if, if you've ever received that dreaded phone call of the sudden death of a loved one, you can't even talk. You're speechless. You just groan. That's what he's talking about here. And he says, we find ourselves brought to silence by the very intensity of our longings. These unutterable sighs or groans are not to be despised as if we ought to put them into language. On the contrary, when we thus sigh within articulate desires, it is the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf, prompting these deep longings. Here's the next uh, Thing, verse 27 says the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God what does that mean this is what it means that God is so gracious that he will give to us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew let's bow our heads let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning so father father God you loved us and hate suffering you so loved us and hate suffering that you were willing to send your son down and get involved in it. We trust you in suffering, not because we see your hand in our circumstances, but because we see your heart on the cross. Jesus took the only suffering that could destroy us on our behalf so that by grace through faith in him, when we suffer, we would be more than conquerors. We could suffer well. So as we touch your heart through prayer, in this time of communion, give us the power and the perspective we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Just take a few moments, listen to this song, let it minister to your heart, and then I'll invite you up to take communion.
not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't say, it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, Therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and careful.